Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. With coronavirus infection numbers shooting up, the government is battling to regain some level of control. The exponential growth has absolutely kicked in. I think scientists now are extremely worried about where this all goes. Last week, the government introduced a new three-tiered system in England to simplify its messaging and impose new local lockdowns. It hasn't gone down well. Everyone who has a problem with what the Prime Minister wants to do has had a chance to think about it, talk to their allies, mobilise, and they have somehow all come together to oppose what the government wants to do and lay down their own terms. As coronavirus grips the country again, what is going on in the corridors of power? And can Britain avert another disaster this winter? You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Westminster and a country in tears. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Last Monday, the Prime Minister addressed the nation. We're entering a new and crucial phase in a fight against coronavirus. Medium, high and very high. Tiers one, two and three. They're the new rules that govern life in England, and they've divided the nation, launching a battle between Westminster and the regions, between the government and the opposition, frontbenchers and backbenchers. Boris Johnson's strategy to tackle the pandemic on a regional level in England is now being challenged on several fronts. We have unanimously opposed the government's plans for Tier 3. Sage advised a short circuit breaker lockdown. Are these new measures not enough and indeed too late? The council leaders in Greater Manchester support a circuit break above Tier 3 restrictions. I have genuinely concluded that a circuit break is in the national interest. That we know where the disease is surging. And he wants to close pubs, he wants to close bars, he wants to close businesses in areas across the country where the incidence is low. And he wants to, that's what he wants to do. The health of the country depends on these measures working. So how did they become so controversial? Let's rewind to this point exactly three weeks ago. 
Ministers are considering tougher coronavirus measures that could see a total social lockdown across much of northern England and potentially London. The Times has learned that the emergency plan would see pubs, restaurants and bars forced to close for an initial period of two weeks. On Monday the 28th of September, the Times front page featured an exclusive from my colleague, Times Radio's chief political commentator, Tom Newton-Dunn. It was the first time, I think, that most people got some sense of how severe the government thought the second wave was becoming. Virus numbers were going up everywhere. They weren't anywhere near, of course, the levels we were seeing in March and April. But they were still going in completely the wrong direction. What, of course, people don't see, and it's very hard to see, is there's always a roughly two, three-week delay in what happens to case numbers today to the knock-on effect to where they will be in three weeks' time, especially when that affects hospital beds, deaths, patients on mechanical ventilation, the very seriously ill. Because, of course, it takes two to three weeks for someone with the virus to pass it on. It then incubates in someone else, and then it may be some time before we see how severely they're affected. So the government saw all this. A key meeting of SAGE, the government's scientific advisory committee on emergencies, met the week before that time story on the 21st of September, and they recommended some pretty serious actions. And that included semi-shutdowns and full shutdowns for a limited basis on large parts of the country, on a regional basis, first off, but also potentially on a national basis, if need be. Obviously, we found out about that and felt the need to tell the nation. It appears that the government, in good faith, entered into these talks. It's a real pity then to find that some of the detail of them was leaked um, before we had a, a chance to sign things off. I think they have been treating the North with contempt, I'm afraid, in recent weeks in terms of the way they've communicated with us, not to our face, to newspapers. And for everybody reading, it really was an eye-opener. You're right, it was the moment people realised this is quite serious. But for those politicians in the North, it's a, a whole other world because they clearly weren't being kept in the loop about what was coming. Well, I think there was a lot of things going on at the time, actually. Remember, we've just had a pretty sunny, uh, enjoyable summer where the nation did manage to unlock and enjoy themselves and some semblance of normality returned. Obviously not everywhere, but it did feel a bit more normal. Now, Tory MPs, on one side of this argument, some quite libertarian backbench Tory MPs, were very pleased about this, and they did not, under any circumstances, want to see return to any restrictions. Meanwhile, in the North, you had a different picture going on. I think this is sometimes lost over the national picture. Virus rates in the North, contagion in the North didn't go down to the levels we saw in the South and in London, which was very low, and it remained stubbornly persistent. The Health Secretary has announced tough new restrictions for millions of people living in parts of northern England amid a rise in cases of coronavirus. What was happening in the North or throughout the summer from the end of July onwards is some restrictions were being imposed as really the first wave didn't actually go away with restrictions being lifted nationally, quite quickly, you saw some spiking going on in some northern mill towns, Bradford and Blackburn, places like that. We've been looking at the data. We've decided that we need to take action across Greater Manchester, East Lancashire and parts of West Yorkshire. We are banning households meeting up indoors which is actually now known as Tier 2, but households were stopped from mixing from the end of July. So 
you actually had two different countries. You had the country under two different environments. So when the government started talking about it, and papers like ours and radio stations like ours started revealing the thinking going on, you had different reactions in different parts of the country. The North certainly were a little taken back because they thought a lot of the leaders and indeed constituents and residents across these northern towns, Manchester uh, and Liverpool and the northeast, they thought some of the measures they'd been under, some of them for two months, were supposed to have done the job. They hadn't done the job. And in fact, the numbers were still going up. And it was that extra burden, which was new to people in the South, but that extra burden the North had already been carrying for a while. I think that's what particularly bothered them. And they felt like they hadn't been consulted any of this and they felt like they were being left out. These figures are flashing at us like dashboard warnings in a passenger jet. And we must act now. We are today simplifying, standardising and in some places toughening local rules in England by introducing three levels of Covid alert. You've been talking to people in Westminster. Take us behind the scenes. What was happening in meetings and how did the government actually come up with this new tiered system? Well, it was the result of many weeks, possibly even months, actually, of deliberation. And I think that's probably where the real problems of the divisions that we're currently seeing set root in that... It was simply too long a period of time the government took to get everything in order. And that created a bit of a vacuum because people could see what was happening with the numbers. We were writing about it. Other people were talking about what might have to happen. And that gave the forces of opposition to it time to mobilise. You had, I suppose, the economy hawks versus the health dubs in the ascendants throughout the summer, trying to get the economy back to normal again. You had Rishi Sunak's Eat Out to Help Out scheme budgets coming forward, winter economic plans, to wean the hard-pressed taxpayer off the state supporters, the chance would like to see it. And that means supporting people to be in viable jobs. I cannot save every job. And we must learn to live with it and live without fear. So you had one big current of movement going on, led by the economy hawks, led by the Chancellor. And at exactly the same time, you had the scientists re-emerging. Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer, Patrick Vallance, the Chief Scientific Advisor, saying, What I'd like to do is just remind you how quickly this can move. Hang on a minute here. There are significant rates of transmission doubling roughly every seven days. Look at what's happening to the virus. Hospitalizations are following. It's coming back across the great majority of the country. We're spiking again. Deaths, unfortunately, will follow that. We could be on the verge of the second wave. This is not someone else's problem. This is all of our problem. And there is the potential for this to move very fast. Prime Minister, act now. 50,000 cases in the middle of October per day. Before you have a real medical emergency on your hands. That requires speed. It requires action. And it requires enough in order to be able to bring that down. Uh, Next slide, please. I think it took the government and Tory MPs and probably, quite frankly, all of us some time to get our heads around the fact that we weren't in those sunny summer days of August any longer. It was feeling more wintry. It was feeling a bit more like March and April again. And that was the trajectory that we were on. There was that perhaps understandable delay of a sort of a gear change or even a direction change going on everywhere. And there were tensions, of course, across government about this. There were huge arguments between government ministries, the Treasury, the Business Department on one side, the Department of Health under Matt Hancock, of course, and Michael Gove on the other side. And it took time for the government to develop this tier system, which we saw rolled out this week, and time, of course, for others to oppose. 
And it's interesting, you talked a bit about the tensions between the political and the scientific communities there. They were clearly pushing for more extreme measures back then. They now seem to think it's almost too late. What are you hearing about how that relationship is panning out? Well, that relationship is getting fractured, pretty much like every relationship a prime minister has, all these different communities trying to keep happy, really. I mean, who would be a prime minister at a time like this? He has so many different competing arguments, competing philosophies, and he's trying to map a course, it would appear, between all of them, which includes suppressing the virus while at the same time limiting the damage to the economy, the middle way or the third way, as politicians like to call it. His critics say, on every side, if he carries on like this, he's in risk of failing to do both. So, for example, the scientific community, they have been flashing warning lights now for a good month. And that key meeting of the SAGE committee on the 21st of September, they flashed up a raft of emergency measures they were very keen for the government to take immediately, including a two to three week national circuit breaker, a basic shutdown, pretty much everything. So all those contagion trails are simply cut off and other pretty dramatic measures as well. The government looked at all that and pointedly didn't take their advice in full. They did implement some measures. So in England from Monday, we're introducing the rule of six. Tuesday the 22nd of September, our main story for you, pubs, bars and restaurants in England will have to close at 10pm every night from Thursday. We are once again asking office workers who can work from home to do so. So they took some measures, but by no means all measures. And I think that's why you saw Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, sharing a platform with the prime minister in which they announced the tier system and explained how those three tiers were medium high and very high. But Chris Whitty threw in what was a giant ticking hand grenade right in the middle of that press conference, a quite extraordinary moment. I am very confident that the measures that are currently in place are helping to slow the virus. He said, look, this is all well and good what we're doing now and you really all must go and do it. But in my view, I am not confident and nor is anybody confident that the tier three proposals for the highest rates, uh, if we did the absolute base case and nothing more, would be enough to get on top of it. And that is why there's a lot of flexibility in the tier three level. And I'm told by people who know him, he didn't plan to say that comment. He didn't plan to effectively undermine the Prime Minister's brand new strategy, the, the thing they spent all these weeks devising. It was something that came up as a bit of fit of peak, if you like. He was angry that the scientist himself hadn't been listened to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister only gone so far in their advice. And it sort of almost tripped off his tongue. But of course, it has not just damaged, I think, the government's effort. It's also fueled the opposition to the government when the government's critics can now say, well, look, even Chris Whitty says these new measures you want to impose. And the Northern Mayor saying these measures you want to impose on us even your own chief medical officer says they won't work. Yeah. But how badly have just the delays in decision-making caused their own issues? Well, I think that's why this vacuum came about, because really we've spent probably five to six weeks chronicling the government's deliberations of what they're going to do about this ever-insurgent second wave. There have been obviously two consequences. The first is the health one, is that the longer things don't happen... Whether it's a suppression strategy or whether it's a, a let-rip strategy, as Matt Hancock, uh, the health secretary, would, would like to have it, in other words, shield the vulnerable and, and just allow the virus to circulate amongst the rest of society who may not suffer so badly from it. Whichever you don't do or whichever you're not doing in time clearly is going to mean those virus numbers keep on going up. And 
we're roughly 19,000, 20,000 new cases a day, something like 4,000 people in hospital every day, and about 500 people on mechanical ventilation. And those numbers are going up and up and up. And, and the exponential growth now has absolutely kicked in. I think scientists now are extremely worried about where this all goes. There are now predictions that we'll be back under the same case, though the NHS has been the same pressure as we saw in April in really only a few weeks' time by the end of October. The effect on the political vacuum has been everyone who has a problem with what the Prime Minister wants to do has had a chance to think about it, talk to their allies. I think that you've seen the results this week across Greater Manchester, which is a very politically diverse area. You've got nine Tory MPs, a lot more Labour MPs, largely Labour-led councils and, and metro mayors, but they have somehow all come together to oppose what the government wants to do and lay down their own terms. They want largely, substantially larger economic packages from the government. And you've had, therefore, the vacuum filled by opposing forces who've dug in. It is a decision which places the leaders of this city in an open and bad-tempered standoff with Westminster. It is wrong to place some of the poorest parts of England in a punishing lockdown without proper support for the people and businesses affected. Greater Manchester, the Liverpool city region and Lancashire are being set up as the canaries in the coal mine for an experimental regional lockdown strategy as an attempt to prevent the expense of what is truly needed. And I think we've really seen almost trench warfare, if you like, between the government and those sort of opposing forces, if you like to use that probably in a quite adequate military analogy. There have been all sorts of discussions with Manchester. If Manchester and if Andy Burnham is just pulling up the drawbridge and saying uh, we're not going to proceed unless more money is coming in, uh, I don't think that that's uh, an appropriate way to proceed. And they're digging in and they're digging deeper. It's reported that Jonathan Van Damme said to Andy Burnham that a national lockdown was the only way to go. Well, I, I, I've listened to Jonathan Van Tam on countless occasions. And every day this goes on, those trenches get deeper and each side refuses to compromise. And of course, the virus continues to spread throughout all this. We'll have more from behind the scenes in Westminster in just a moment. But you can get access to more of the exclusives and the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If it was the government's delay in taking action that led to the unrest over this new tiered system of lockdowns, why didn't it move more quickly over summer? Was it too distracted? Too busy reshaping the civil service or trying to negotiate a Brexit deal? Tom doesn't think so. It was the tensions within the government that caused the delay in action. The Chancellor, his allies, really didn't want to see new restrictions. They thought it was too early. They thought there was a middle way. And then, of course, those Tory civil libertarians. Much of September was taken up by voting in the House of Commons, various rebellions, insurrections, by an ever-larger group of Tory MPs on the back benches who just simply didn't think the government's attempt to suppress the virus again was the right one. We saw Sir Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, lead what some thought was upwards of 80, even perhaps 100 Tory MPs ready to revolt against some of the government measures. For example, the 10pm curfew, which isn't hugely popular really with anyone. So a lot of the government's bandwidth was taken up fighting the rebels, trying to battle this one out philosophically, rather than getting on with the medical emergency. And I think that's really the cause of the delay. Local leaders accuse ministers of being prepared to sacrifice jobs here to save others elsewhere. The government denies it's unfairly targeting northern cities. And there is nothing that we would ever do that penalises one part of the country over another, but it is right that we take a localised approach. I'm not going to be driving a taxi or living on the dole with no money. From what you're hearing inside Westminster, has the government been surprised by the reaction in the north? I think it's been taken back by the strength of opposition and the coordination of all those different opposing camps coming together. I suppose what does surprise them is when the chief medical officer and Patrick Vallance and the medical community come together and say, this now really does need to happen, and the prime minister effectively relays that message, they're not being listened to. What was also going on, which is... uh, a quite intriguing political dynamic, although a little depressing, I suppose, at the same time, is that both parties in all of this, and the government on one side, the northern mayors and baby Tory MPs on the other, neither one want to be responsible for the consequences of a pretty dramatic semi-lockdown, which is what tier three restrictions would be. What they're both trying to do is say, you share this decision with us and we can all do this together. The northern mayors are saying, no, you want to impose this upon us without the money we want in exchange for all our voters, then you're going to have to do it and and we are going to blame you for it. Prime Minister's come back to say, well, actually, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be the evil tyrant you can paint me as. You've got to share this with me. And I think it's got to say that where both sides see uh, traps built by the other side, big political bear traps with warning signs 100 metres away from them, that they're desperate not to fall into. And that's what's created this quite unpleasant and quite unappetising Mexican standoff at the moment. And for the government, they are fighting fires from many different sides at the moment. But also, I suppose what's startling is that it's quite a lot of the new intake from those red wall constituencies, people who 
representing seats that weren't traditionally Tory and are now finding I mean, a lot of their constituents must be furious. You've hit on the biggest political problem of all for the government. Clearly, those tackling the virus is their major concern at the moment. But of course, this government was elected off the back of 50 or so seats across the Red Wall. It is an absolute cast on electoral fact that the Prime Minister wouldn't be Prime Minister if he hadn't persuaded all those Labour voters to do what they've, some of them, never done before in their lives and vote Tory. It is an extraordinarily bitter irony for Boris Johnson that precisely those voters, although not all of them, because the North is a big area and we're still talking about comfortable Labour areas here, Liverpool, where there haven't been any Tory seats for a while. But the political concern from both Number 10 and also those Red Wall MPs, they were elected on a promise to level up. If the government and those Red Wall MPs are unable to demonstrate a movement of wealth and happiness and prosperity from south to north, very arguably because the north was in restrictions that made it economically incredibly damaging for any growth, and in fact growth to go into reverse, then those Tory Red Wall MPs and Number 10 fear that those Labour voters who trusted the Tories for the first time will be told by the likes of Andy Burnham and Keir Starmer, you made a mistake, we told you never to trust the Tories, look what they've done. Now, that may be an incredibly unfair charge, or it may have some fairness to it, but it is an absolutely real political threat. And I think talking to people inside government and allies of Boris Johnson, that is what scares them most at the moment, long term, in terms of their political health. And... What now? Do you think the Cabinet can come together to solve this crisis? Or are the splits too deep? The Cabinet, it strikes me, are going to be presented pretty soon, if they haven't already, with a new medical emergency. And it's quite depressing saying that, and I hope I'm proved wrong, but it is what the scientists are all now saying, that actually a debate about the whys and wherefores of controlling the virus and different strategies, all that is going to get put aside when those hospital numbers start bursting forth into the public consciousness. An ITU doctor telling me that, yes, we are at full capacity in our intensive care unit. You're full now? Yeah, we are full in the COVID unit. I am dreading we are heading into a disaster. We're already seeing hospitals in Liverpool. Very few ICU beds left. Soon they'll have to turn medical emergencies away. It feels like it's going to be repeated across the north, unless the virus is suppressed, which it shows no signs of doing at the moment, then we'll get into those terrible pictures that we saw in April. Now, of course, the Nightingale hospitals are there, that new huge capacity to treat people. I think when they start to take patients, everybody will see, okay, this is now about saving the NHS again. And I think that's the moment everyone flips onto this emergency strategy of simply doing all they can. These arguments, I suspect, will begin to be parked a bit as the immediate crisis takes centre stage. Good afternoon. On Friday afternoon, the Prime Minister delivered another stark warning, both to the country and to the Mayor of Greater Manchester. On present trends, in just over two weeks, there will be more COVID patients in intensive care than at the peak of the first wave. So I urge the Mayor to reconsider and engage constructively. And he threatened to overrule Andy Burnham. If agreement cannot be reached, I will need to intervene to protect Manchester's hospitals and save the lives of Manchester's residents. In a statement on Friday night, the Mayor of Greater Manchester and all 10 council leaders said, we can assure the Prime Minister that we are ready to meet at any time to try to agree a way forward. We firmly believe that protecting health is about more than controlling the virus. 
and requires proper support for people whose lives would be severely affected by a Tier 3 lockdown. That is why we await further talks. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times Radio Chief Political Commentator Tom Newton-Dunn. You can hear more of Tom's reporting and analysis on GNT, his Sunday morning politics show with a former MP, Gloria De Piero. Listen from 10 till 1 on Sundays on DAB, on your smart speaker, or in the Times Radio app. The producers today were Edward Drummond and James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you can, please do leave us a review. It'll help other listeners to find the podcast. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>